You are listening to audio from the Rail City campus of CA Church. We are a church fervently committed to bringing the good news to the city of Port Moody. We hope this message helps you grow in your personal relationship with Jesus. All right. Good morning, everyone. How are you this morning? It is so good to be with you all. My name is Cam Daly. I'm one of the pastors here at CA Church, and I'm the campus pastor here at Rail City Campus. And it is so good to be gathering with you for church here in Port Moody. Uh, and I know we've said it a couple times, but if this is your first time here, and there's a few people this morning, I'm like, I, I think this might be your first time. Welcome. We're not one of those churches that's going to make you stand up and wave, so don't worry. Um, <laughs> And uh, for those of you who regularly come here and make, you know, Rail City a part of your day-to-day life uh, and your Sunday mornings, uh, we are so glad to have you. Uh, We've been in a series for the last couple weeks called Behold. Uh, And uh, really throughout this series, it's leading up to the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ Easter weekend. And there's a number of different moments we wanted to look at. This word, behold, is actually used 1,298 times in the KJV Bible, okay? The King James Bible. We don't read the King James here, uh, but they really liked this word, behold. And it comes from the Greek word, edo, which the literal translation of this means to be sure to see, to be sure to see. Or as I like to think of it, don't miss this, all right? That's kind of the idea. Don't miss this. Something is about to happen. Something is about to unfold. There is some detail in here that we don't want you to miss. And I think that's the heart. That is kind of the the vibe for this series is that there's a number of different events throughout uh, the narrative, the story that leads up to the cross that we don't want you to just kind of skim past it and jump straight to the cross, but we want you to look. We don't want you to miss it. We want you to fixate your attention upon it. And so three weeks ago when we started uh, this series, Pastor John Hawes uh, kind of unpacked the, the story where Jesus is on the mount. Uh, and so he's on the Mount of Olives and he's looking over Jerusalem and he's praying for Jerusalem and he's mourning for Jerusalem. In fact, he's speaking warning over Jerusalem. And then last week, uh, Pastor Jorley Romine, she talked about the meal. Uh, you, you probably know it as the Last Supper where Jesus and his disciples gathered uh, the night before he would, the night that he would be betrayed, uh, and they shared a meal together. And this is where we get the act of communion. Uh, It was in that meal where Jesus lifted up the cup and the bread, uh, and he told us to take these things in remembrance of him every time we gather together. That's why we do it every week here at Rail City. And she talked about how meals are familiar and how meals point to Jesus and how meals bring connectivity. Uh, It was a a great message. Now this morning, the story we want you to behold, to bring your attention to, to look deeper into, likely one that you've heard before, is Jesus in the garden. We want you to behold Jesus in the garden, the garden of Gethsemane. Now this story is found in all of the gospels in various different forms. 
But the one I want us to narrow in on this morning is in Luke chapter 22. Luke chapter 22, and we're going to start in verse 39 and go to 54. And this is the story of Jesus in the garden. And so one of the things we do here as the church, if you are willing, okay, you don't have to, if you are able, uh, would you stand? Uh, we believe these are some of the most important words you're going to hear this morning. God's words, and they're found in Luke chapter 22, verse 39. We got it on the screen if you'd like to. So uh, let's read this story. Let's behold the Jesus of Luke 22. <clears throat> then, accompanied by the disciples, Jesus left the upstairs room, that is the upper room where he was having that meal, and he went as usual to the Mount of Olives, to the Garden of Gethsemane. There he told them, the disciples, pray that you will not give in to temptation. He walked away about a stone's throw and knelt down and he prayed, Father, if you are willing, please take this cup of suffering away from me. Yet I want your will to be done and not mine. And then an angel from heaven appeared and strengthened him. He prayed more fervently and he was in such agony of spirit that his sweat fell to the ground like great drops of blood. At last he stood up again and returned to the disciples only to find them asleep, exhausted from grief. Why are you sleeping? He asked them. Get up and pray that you will not fall into temptation. But even as Jesus said this, a crowd approached, led by Judas, one of the twelve disciples. Judas walked over to Jesus to greet him with a kiss. But Jesus said, Judas, would you betray the Son of Man with a kiss? When the other disciples saw what was about to happen, they exclaimed, Lord, should we fight? We've brought swords. And one of them struck the high priest's slave, slashing off his right ear. But Jesus said, no more of this. And he touched the man's ear and healed him. Then Jesus spoke to the leading priests and captains of the temple guard and the elders who had come for him. Am I a dangerous revolutionary? He asked. You come with swords and clubs to arrest me? Why didn't you arrest me in the temple? I was there every day. But this is your moment, the time when the power of darkness reigns. So they arrested him and led him to the high priest's home. Jesus, this is your word. This is a story within the gospels that the authors of scripture wanted us to see and not to miss. A powerful moment leading up to the moment that you would die for us and rise from the grave. I pray today that you would give us eyes to see. You would give us ears to hear. You would open our hearts to see what it is that you want us to see in this story. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Everyone said, amen. <clears throat> What do you behold? As you hear this story, as you watch it unfold before you, what do you see? What strikes you about Jesus? What is brought to your attention? What lines, what parts of this stand out? I believe that the Spirit of God inspired the words of God, and he still speaks through the word of God in powerful ways. <clears throat> 
Uh, I've experienced this actually many times, and maybe you've experienced this, that when you read a text that you've read time and time and time again, and then you read it and something else stands out to you. Especially uh, for those of you who have been following Christ for a long time, you've likely read this story time and time again, but perhaps you've missed something. Something profound, something deep, something incredible about who Jesus is. And I believe there's a number of different things in this story that perhaps we could miss. Powerful things. But it would take me all day. (laughs) And so I want to focus in on a couple particular ideas. For us here this morning, there's two of them. I want you to behold Jesus' battle. And I want you to behold Jesus' betrayal. Behold the battle. Jesus goes to battle in this text. Some of you are saying, what? Think about this. He looked over the city. He had his final meal. And then he enters into the garden and he goes to battle. Battle in a garden. Let's just put up the Garden of Gethsemane. Uh, This doesn't look like your typical battleground, okay? This is a picture that I took when I was there in Israel in October, and it's a beautiful place. It's not a place that you would expect someone to go to battle. It is full of olive trees and plants and and birds and and flowers, and it's just a beautiful place. It overlooks the city of Jerusalem, but it was in this place and in this space that Jesus goes to battle in a garden, a beautiful garden of all places. What do I mean when I say he goes to battle? Well, there's a battle at play, uh, taking place within him, within his very soul. If you look at verse 44, it says this, he prayed more fervently and he, he, there was such agony of spirit that sweat fell to the ground like great drops of blood. Agony. If you look into this word agony, it's actually the Greek word agonia. And if you look into the literal meaning, how they would use it in that day and in that time, it was actually a word that was used for a battle within with great fear. There was a battle within with great fear. Jesus was fighting a battle, a battle with fear, a battle with temptation, a battle with the will. And so he goes to battle in an unlikely way, in an unlikely place, in a garden. Jesus is so afraid. He he is so afraid that the text tells us that he begins to, to sweat like great drops of blood. And I find it very interesting that Luke, the author of this scripture, who is a physician, a doctor, would make note of this. Because this isn't just a, a condition, like it's, it, it may not just be metaphor, but it may have literally happened. There's a medical condition called uh, hemidrosis, where when human beings are in, under such large amounts of stress, the, the capillary uh, blood vessels rupture and cause someone to sweat, not just sweat, but blood. And some believe this is actually taking place with Jesus. He has such internal turmoil, such an inner fight. He is under such distress that he actually begins to sweat blood. Why is he afraid? Because he knows what's going to happen next. Last week, if you look at the story that is right before this, we see that Jesus is in the upper room and Uh, They're having the meal together, but he's also prophesying. 
He's prophesying that he is going to have to go to the cross and that he's going to have to die. Jesus knows what is going to happen next. And being fully human, and you can see Jesus' humanity coming out in this text. He's experiencing emotion. He is sweating. He is on his knees. He is eating a meal right before this. Jesus, his humanity is coming forth and he begins to fight this battle within. Why is he afraid? Because he's going to have to fight this battle alone. There will not be armies behind him. There will not be men with swords and shields. He will have to go to the cross alone. And he will be utterly alone. He knows that his disciples will flee. He knows that his family will be nowhere to be found. He, know that, he knows that his father will turn his face from him. And he needs it to go into the place where all the powers of darkness will do their absolute worst. They will do everything they can to take him down and put an end to him. And he knows he's going to have to face this alone. And so he is afraid. He's going to have to fight this battle against sin and death and hell and all the forces of darkness utterly alone. And he is afraid. And you would be afraid too. And so would I. And so Jesus finds himself in a garden. On his knees, another gospel account says, actually on his face, in a position of humility, surrender, and fear. And he's afraid. He's deeply afraid. You might have missed this. Don't miss it. Our God is a God who understands fear. Are you afraid? He was there. He experienced it too. He was afraid. Why was he afraid? He was afraid to drink the cup. In this text, you'll see it says the, the cup of suffering. It says, Father, if you are willing, please take this cup of suffering away from me. What is he talking about? Well, the cup was an Old Testament, it was a metaphor for the wrath of God. It was the cup of God's wrath. It says you do not want to drink from the cup of God's wrath. And Jesus is afraid. He's afraid to drink from the cup of God's wrath, knowing that on the cross, all of the wrath of God, all of the anger of God, all of the, 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 uh, the judgment of God would be placed upon him instead of us. And he doesn't want to drink from this cup. He's afraid. And this is why he is in agony. This is why there is a battle within. This is why he is battling with sheer fear, as the Greek word agonia points to. Jesus is fighting an internal battle. He is at war with the will. You ever been at war with the will before? There's, there's this inner voice within you that's telling you to do something, but you want to do the other, it's telling you to go, but you want to stay. It's telling you to stay, but you want to go. There's this inner fight, this inner battle of your will versus God's will. Have you experienced this? You can sense his conflict, right? Father, if you're willing, could you please take this cup from me? <laughs> oh, please take. 
not my will, not my will, but yours be done. I'll drink from the cup. And, and, and one of the other gospels actually tells us he doesn't just say this one time to the father, but three times. In the gospel of John, we see him say, Father, if you're willing, would you please take this cup from me? Father, if you're willing, would you take the cup of suffering from me? God, if you are willing, would you take this from me? I don't want to drink from this cup. He has this internal conflict within him, a war with the will. My will be done or thy will be done. Jesus experienced this inner conflict and you will too. You see, this is a pivotal point in the passion narrative where Jesus now has to faithfully walk out what the Father has asked him to do. But at this point, he has not been arrested. At this point, he is not in the hands of the enemy. At this point, he can turn his back on his destiny. He can turn his face away from his purpose and walk the other way. And I think it's hard for us to believe this sometimes about Jesus. We really think that he could just, you know, do whatever he wants. He can just, you know, or, sorry, he's just perfectly aligned with the Father's will and will do whatever he says, whenever he says it and all this kind of... But we see Jesus at this point, he could have turned his back on his purpose. He could have said, my will be done, not your will be done. And he has this inner battle. He sweats great drops of blood. And I find this time and time again, is that often the Christian life is a daily battle of us deciding whether it's going to be my will be done or God's will to be done. My will or thy will be done. Why does... He want to turn away from this cup. Why is it that he's having this internal battle? Well, because he's going to have to die. I was thinking about Jesus, like, Jesus, why, why are you having this internal struggle? He's going to have to go to the cross. And uh, as someone who's turning 33 on Tuesday, he's only 33 years old. And I thought to myself, actually, it was kind of in the mindset of Christ. I'm 33. I don't want to die. I want to live. I want to keep going. And Jesus is probably having similar thoughts. He's pleading for his life. Father, if you're willing. Father, are you sure? Father, would you please take this path from me? Have you been there? Jesus was he was having this internal battle my will or thy will to use the KJV my will or your will be done God and as I said as a follower of Jesus this will be a daily battle my will or God's will my way or his way and there will be pivotal moments in your life where you will have to decide whether it is you will follow God's will or your own will There'll be moments in your parenting where you have to decide, is it my will or God's will? There'll be moments as a husband or a wife or a spouse where you will have to decide, is it my way or his way? There'll be moments as a citizen where you'll have to decide, is it my will or your will, God? 
There'll be moments in your friendship. There'll be moments in your workplaces. There will be moments in your day-to-day life where you yourself will be faced with the challenge, the battle, the inner turmoil that Jesus had. Will I do it my way or God's way? And this is our challenge. The challenge that Jesus faced is the one that we will have to face. Will we die? It's a weird question to ask. But Jesus said, if you want to be one of my followers, he says, you must die. You must take up your cross and you must follow me. And this is the, the, the problem that Jesus has in the Garden of Gethsemane. Will he be willing to die to himself? Will he be willing to pick up that cross for you and I? Will he follow God's will? And you will have to decide as well, Christian. If you're not a Christian, I'm not speaking to you in this moment. Will I die to myself? Will I die to my objectives? Will I die to my purposes, my plans, my way, my endeavors in order to follow God's way of doing this? Will I put aside that which I believe is best in order to follow God's best? Friends, this is deeply challenging. But Jesus sets an example for us. What do we see him doing. He says it three times. So three times he says, Father, will you take this cup from me, please? If you are willing, take this cup from me. Father, will you take this cup from me? But three times we see Jesus win the battle with the will. Three times he says, but not my will, but yours be done. Yet I want your will to be done, not mine, Father. Not mine, but yours. Jesus wins the battle that we too will need to win by the power of the spirit, by his faith in the father's plan. He perseveres. He pushes through this moment and he says, not my will, but yours be done. He wins the battle and we will have to fight this battle as well and win this war with the will when it comes to our Christian life. Don't miss this. This is an incredible moment in the garden narrative. But there's something else going on here. I don't want you to miss it. I want you to behold Jesus' betrayal. Jesus is betrayed and arrested. In verse 47, we see this, but even as Jesus was saying this and this event is unfolding, the crowd approached. I I, I find this really interesting. Even as Jesus said this, even as Jesus said this, we, we can just jump over lines like this, but literally Jesus has just like fought the battle. He has just, he made war with the will. He has finally moved past this moment. Okay, I will fix my eyes on the cross. I will father, follow the father's plan. And it was like, like almost immediately after he had said this, that, that suddenly it's like, okay, the crowd appeared. The father's like, okay, you're ready. Boom, the crowd appeared. Led by Judas. One of the 12 disciples, Jesus walked over to Jesus to greet him with a kiss. But Jesus said, Judas, would you betray the son of man with a kiss? I find this very interesting. Behold, Jesus betrayed. 
not by a stranger, not by an enemy, no, by Judas, one of the 12 disciples. Go back a slide. One of the the 12 disciples, one of his closest friends, his confidants, someone he had shared laughs with and meals with and ministered with and time with, someone whom he entrusted to take care of the finances during their ministry. The person you trust with the finances is one of the people you trust the most, okay? In our church, it used to be a guy named Richard McGregor, okay? We, if it, we, we trusted Richard, okay? He took care of the finances. Every Sunday, I, I entrust Nathan that he's going to go and take the offering and he's going to bring it up to the church. He's going to make sure it goes into the safe so no one will take it. I, I don't touch it. I don't look at it. The person you trust, sorry, I've kind of compared you to Judas, actually, Nathan, but... <laughs> Nathan, no, he's not a Judas. It's good. The person that you trust with the finances is one of your closest confidants. He's one of the people you trust the most in the world. And that is true of Nathan. I believe that about him. I honor him. I do. But in this story, this story, this person is the person who betrays Jesus his closest friend, one of his closest friends. He'd spent three years with him. Judas was there when Jesus healed people and opened the eyes of the blind. Judas was there when Jesus walked on water. Judas was there when Jesus was tired. Judas was there in the upper room when Jesus was talking about what was happening. Judas is the one to betray him, one of his closest friends. Have you ever had a friend betray you? Jesus did. Don't miss it. In this story, we see Jesus experience something that you and I have likely encountered, the betrayal of a friend. And how does he betray him? How does he betray him? Yes, he sells him over to the high priests and the officials for like a small amount of silver, like enough to get a couple lattes, okay? But in this story, we see that he betrays him with a kiss. A kiss. What's a kiss? Well, when I officiate weddings, usually at, you know, the latter part of the ceremony, I say... Okay, the moment you've been waiting for, you may kiss your bride. It's a a moment that signifies a seal of a commitment, a celebration, a romance between two people. When you kiss a family member or a child on the cheek, it's a symbol or a sign of love and closeness, affection, and care. When uh, when someone kisses a, a hand, it signifies respect or honor. I think of the depiction in the crown of Winston Churchill uh, as he kisses Her Majesty the Queen's hand and he backs away in honor with his cane, right? I, th- I, I remember my first kiss with Jessica. 
I won't go into details, okay? That was a, I won't go into details. It was here in Port Moody. That's all I'll tell you. Uh, <laughs> but that was a moment of, of you know, displaying that we liked one another, that there was attraction, there was affection, there was something more. And in Jesus' day, people would greet each other with a kiss. Kind of similar uh, the way that we would just be like, hey, what's up? Like pound it or like do a handshake or a hug. This was a normal greeting. And it was actually common for disciples of a rabbi to walk up to their rabbi to put their hands on their shoulders and, and to greet them with a kiss. I don't think on the lips, probably on the cheek or the forehead or something like this, but to greet them with a kiss. And so Jesus greets his rabbi with a kiss. And the interesting thing is this. No matter how you kiss or who you kiss, it always symbolizes something good. Until Judas... Until Jesus, Judas, he exploits this act of romance, of love, of friendship, of adoration and care. And he turns it into a sign of betrayal. A sign of affection becomes a sign of defection. He told the crowds before, the officials, the religious leaders, the one whom I greet with a kiss is Jesus. This is the one whom will be arrested. And he walks up and he takes this intimate thing and this intimate thing incites Jesus' arrest. And even Jesus is taken aback by this. Look at verse 48. Judas, would you betray the son of man with a kiss? Of all things, would you take this thing that was supposed to be of good, of intimacy, of love, of affection, and this is what you use. This is the sign that you choose to betray me? It's shocking. Judas takes this good thing and he twists it. And Jesus is in shock. Don't miss the power of this moment. We, like Judas, at times can take these things, these good things, and we can twist them. And we can use them for evil. We can take things that were meant to be good and pure and godly, and we can twist them and use them for evil. We, like Judas, can offer something which was meant to be good and wholesome and great, and we use it in a context, we use it in a way that is not for good, that is for evil. This is really what sin is. It's taking something good that God ordained, that God created, that God made, and then we twist it. And we utilize it in a way in which it wasn't meant to be used. And this is what Judas does, and we too can do this at times with the good things that God has given us, the gifts that he has given us. We can use them for evil and not for good. It's a warning to us. Recognizing this, the disciples, they jump into action. You see this in the story? When the other disciples saw what had happened, they exclaimed, Lord, should we fight? We've brought swords. 
And one of them struck the high priest's slave's ear, slashing off his right ear. And uh, one of the commentators I was reading this week was saying, when your first instinct is to cut off a guy's ear, you've probably done this before, right? Uh, Which is kind of an interesting insight into the life of the disciples, right? When your first instinct is pulling out swords and cutting off a guy's ear, you show that these were not these holy, 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 you know, uh, band of merry monks, right? But, uh, but rather, the, these, these guys have been in a few scraps and a few fights before. And the one who jumps forward uh, to cut off the ear, actually, uh, another one of the gospels that tells this story tells us is Peter. Of course it's Peter, right? It's always Peter, right? He was, just, he was always an act before think kind of guy, right? He jumps into the scene, boom, slices off. A, another gospel tells us the high priest slave Malchus, great name for your, your next child, okay? Um, <laughs> cuts off his ear, his right ear. Now, I don't know, like, I don't know if Peter missed or this was intentional, right? I'm not sure if he was trying to go down the middle, but it was just kind of dark or hazy or whatever it might be. But he just cuts off this guy's ear. It's a pretty wild moment. Uh, there was a, there, there's an interesting translation of uh, the, the Gospels that were used to kind of reach like Vikings in Iceland, speaking of Iceland and Scandinavia. And the way that they, they say this, rather than saying, you know, he cut off his ear with the sword, it says, he took his broad sword and sliced off the right side of his head, right? It's like, just, you know, it's just trying to reach, I guess, that demographic. But, <laughs> but this is interesting. In some ways, I think this is part of the battle that Jesus was preparing for. He can allow his disciples to fight. He can allow his disciples to defend him. He can can allow them to run to his aid. Maybe he could stave off the arrest. Maybe he could avoid the cross. If they could just win this battle, he is free. He could run away. He could flee. But instead, what does he do? His heart has been prepared. He's already won the battle with the will. And rather than allowing them to fight, he yells, no more of this. And he touches the man's ear. And he heals him. No more of this. No, this is not the way. This is not the path. Jesus, the Messiah, does not fight his battle with swords. This isn't how he defeats his enemy. It's through sacrifice. It's through giving his life. He doesn't fight. He trusts God. He submits to the Father's will rather than his own. Why? Because Jesus came to heal, not to fight. Jesus came to heal, not to fight. There will be a day that he will return. But in this day and in this time, he did not choose the sword. He chose the hand. He chose to heal. He reaches out and he says, no more of this. And he heals the man ear. You know, this is the last miracle recorded in the Gospels. The very last miracle, the healing of the ear of a man who was a part of the company that was coming to arrest him. Don't miss this. Behold him. This is our Savior, the God who heals, restores, and renews through sacrifice, not through the sword. This act of healing, I I believe, diffuses the moment immediately. If you can imagine after an act like this, you've cut off a guy's ear, a brawl is about to happen, 
okay? And, and, and perhaps one of his disciples' lives will be taken in this fight. But Jesus in this moment, no more of this, reaches out and heals the misstep of one of his followers, Peter. He puts an end to the fight through healing. Friends, don't miss this. Following just moments after this, they arrested him, this verse 54, and they led him to the high priest's home. And this is where he began to be questioned, and he will go into the trial, which Nathan will speak about. I don't want you to miss this story. Behold him. Behold our Savior. At this point, we're going to transition into our time of communion. I'll invite the band up. Why did Jesus fight the battle? Why did he face the betrayal? It was for you and for me. He could have turned his back and hid. He could have went the other way. But he fought instead with healing. He went forward and he battled the will. In the garden that night, he said, not my will, but yours be done, God. In the garden that night, he said, no more of this. In the garden that night, he was arrested so that he could set us free. And as we always do, as we've beheld Jesus today, we will come to the table. And at the table, when we take communion, to those of us who believe it symbolizes the body that was broken for our healing. Same way that he healed Malchus that night. As we take the juice, the cup, it represents his blood was, which was shed. But it also represents for us that he drank the cup of bitter suffering in order that we could drink this sweet juice. As we come to the table, we remember we behold him in our mind's eye and in our hearts. And so here's what's going to happen today. The ushers will come forward. They stand over here and here. Work away from the front row to the back. You don't have to come forward. But for those of us who believe, for those of us who behold Jesus, for those of us who have fixed our eyes on him, we've heard the story We've believed it in our heart. We get to come to the table and remember. The bread which represents his body that was broken for our healing. The juice which represents the cup that he drank on our behalf and his blood that cleansed us from our sins. It's a moment to remember. And so I'm going to pray for us. Jesus, we behold you this morning. The story of the garden. We behold the battle that you fought on our behalf. We thank you, Lord, that rather than turning your back on your purpose, you turned your face towards the Father's will and you walked towards the cross for us. We thank you, God, that you faced betrayal 
so that we could be welcomed into the family of God. And Lord, for the moments this week, this month, (laughs) that we have said, my will, not your will be done. For the moments that we, like Judas, have taken something good and we've twisted it for evil. For the moments where we have lost the battle within. We thank you, God, that you didn't in the garden. That you faced the cross. heal us, to restore us, to administer forgiveness and grace and mercy and kindness upon us. We thank you, God, that you are not a God who comes with sword against us, but you are a servant who said no more of this. Help us in our mind's eye this morning to behold you and to thank you for all that you have done. We behold you this morning, Jesus. I pray these things in your name. Amen. Thanks for listening to this message. If you've been listening to our sermons, but you're not a part of a church community, we would love to have you join us. You can go to cachurch.ca slash rail city to find out more information about getting involved in the life and mission of the rail city campus of CA Church.